Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. Leviticus, chapter 19, hear now the word of our God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of our God. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the, the gentle, general principles of food and sex. In other words, we've been looking at how sustaining life and reproducing life are connected to our relationship to God. Now, in our day, we've tended to divide our spiritual life from our biological life. That's not helpful. When God called Israel to draw near to him, he used the two most bodily functions as the two central themes, eating and sex. When you eat an animal, the life, which is in the blood, the blood of the, the is, is given for you. When an animal dies so that you might eat it, its blood is shed for you so that you might live. There's a principle there. If you are to live, something has to die. And this is why, as I mentioned this morning, we do partake of the blood of Christ. Because while Christ died for us, he is also now resurrected. He is alive. You do not merely partake of the blood of a dead Christ. You partake of the blood of the, of the Christ who died and lives for you. And as we saw back in chapter 17, the apostles decided at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 
that Gentiles as well should abstain from blood. And we saw how that prohibition goes back to Noah and applies to all humanity. So not surprisingly, the apostles say, well, that's not a Mosaic regulation. That's actually a Noahic regulation. And so that's what they have. So they say, basically, yeah, that, that still applies. Likewise, sexual relations are designed to reproduce the image of God. When the high priest enters the most holy place in chapter 16, he becomes the image of God in the sanctuary. God had told Israel, don't make any graven image. That's that's mentioned again in, in our chapter. But God had said, don't put an image in my sanctuary. Why? Because there will be an image every time the high priest enters. Because back in the garden, God had created humanity, Adam and Eve, in his own image. There was an image in the sanctuary. God created that image. God put that image there. And so God says, when, when you have my sanctuary in the tabernacle, don't put an image there. Or actually, do put an image there once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest enters. And as we saw last week, our sexual relations are designed to point to that. Male and female coming together as the high priest enters the most holy place. That's part of why scripture so regularly connects the themes of adultery and idolatry. Don't go into the wrong holy place. And as we turn to chapter 19, it may appear at first to be a, a strange combination of laws, and, and especially if we go on to the, when we go on to the second half next week, it seems like it blends so much that it, you know, civil and moral and ceremonial matters all blended together. And part of the reason is because the law was given together. I mean, the moral law, as it's found in the Ten Commandments, is the heart and soul of the law. The ceremonial law, the the sacrificial system, and the related code relating to clean and unclean prefigures Christ. And it's still very useful, as we've been seeing in the first half of Leviticus, to help us think about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's actually how the New Testament uses it. But we're not bound to following the ceremonies in all their details. Likewise, the civil law applies the moral law to the particular situation of Old Testament Israel, And as we will continue to see, the principles remain important. The applications may vary from time to time and place to place, but the the equity of of the civil law remains extremely valuable. Indeed, if we if we abandon the equity, if we abandon the principles of justice that Moses teaches, we will abandon what God Himself requires of us. So in one sense, tonight, as we look at the first half of chapter 19, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, Though particularly, the Ten Commandments as applied to Israel's pursuit of holiness. The organizing principle around which the whole chapter is built is verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Tonight we're looking at the first part in the call to love God and neighbor in verses 3 to 18. And next week we'll look at the call to keep God's statutes in verses 19 to 37. But before we start, I want to just... I realize how you hear this will depend on what presuppositions you're bringing to the table. It's really easy to hear chapter 19 as, oh, 
This is talking about our religious life, our spiritual life. And then we keep a separate set of categories for ordinary life. I would suggest that God wants wants to challenge you not to think that way. Our culture has really no place for the holy. We talk about normal and deviant. That's the modern American way of talking. But that's not how God teaches us to speak. So what does God, God's way of talking do? If we actually thought in the way that God tells us about, and we've been, I've been laying out the paradigm and pointing out, there's the holy and the common. And within the common, there's the clean and the unclean. And within the unclean, there's, there's the, you might say the ordinary unclean, but then there's the detestable and the abominable and sort of, what, what have we been seeing? There is a way that leads toward life and there is a way that leads toward death. That when God is talking about the holy, this is, this, you see, one of, one of the, the advantages of thinking about think life, thinking about everything in the way that God tells us to, it's actually, if we thought this way, if we actually lived this way, what would that do to all of the discussions about class and race and gender and sexual? What would it do? Well, those aren't the categories that God tells us to think in. How, how would we think about people? Well, we think about people in terms of, it's not, are they sort of, sort of what, what's the, you know, I, I, all the identity issues, all the questions about you know, sort of how we categorize people nowadays. Those all go out the window. The question of how does God speak to us? He says, be holy as I am holy. Whatever other situation may exist in your life, what does it mean to be holy? Because God is holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? We oftentimes talk about holiness in terms of separation. And that's, that's where the word comes from. God is set apart, unique, distinct. But if God is set apart, unique, distinct... What does it mean for us to be holy as God is holy? R.C. Sproul has a great section on sort of the holiness of God and where he talks about God's holiness. As I reflected back, I haven't gone back and watched it, but as I reflected back, it's a great description of what God's holiness means. But I couldn't actually remember if... Sproul actually gets to, so then, what does it mean for us to be holy? Because the tendency, and what where I, now, again, I haven't come back to watch it, I'm not blaming Sproul for this. I'm saying, where I came away from Sproul as I listened to that the first time, what I came away with was, oh, so I need to be distinct from my culture, I need to be distinct, I need, I need to be distinct like God is distinct, but God is so transcendent. He is so beyond us that I'm, over, I'm still over here and God's over there. 
That's not what God's saying here. It's not that simply we are to be distinct from everybody around us. Oh, it includes that. But that doesn't stop there. We are, as we've been seeing throughout Leviticus, what is the heart of the book? What is the refrain that I've come back to in hopefully every sermon? It's that we are to ascend the hill of the Lord. The heart of God's holiness is to draw His people into His presence so that we might share in His holiness. How do you... If, if all you think of in terms of God's holiness is that, that He's set apart, He's distinct, He's different, and we're just down here, and the, then you haven't got the whole idea of God's holiness. The point of God's holiness is grounded, the, the heart of God's holiness is founded in the incarnation of the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us so that he, we might share in His holiness. And I know from having listened to a lot of Sproul that he'd probably agree with everything I just said. It's just I didn't quite hear it from him the way he said it the first time. If your idea of holiness does not get you to the incarnation of the Word who became flesh, if it does not get you to we share in His holiness, we are joined to that holy life, then your idea of holiness is too small. God is holy. And His holiness must not be profaned. And yeah, the problem is we are unclean. How can a people of unclean lips draw near a holy God? That's where we've been in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus. How can God's people draw near to a holy God? And now, as we turn to the second half of the book, we're looking at what that holiness should look like in our lives. And as chapter 19 points out, this holiness is rooted in Israel's redemption from Egypt. That's where the chapter ends, but I, I'll, so I'll say it up front. That's where we're going. How, how, how can God call Israel to be holy? Because he has redeemed Israel from bondage to sla- and slavery in Egypt. They are not delivered from bondage because they were holy. They are holy because they were delivered from bondage. God has set them apart as a people distinct for himself. And now he is going to show them, he's shown them now the way to come into the holy place as the high priest comes once a year. Which, I know, now that we've gotten used to Jesus, that sounds like a little piddling, a little bit of nothing. But for them, that was amazing. Whoa! Never before has any man... uh, Okay, fine. Moses, Moses there at, at that Mount Sinai, sort of. But how... That was, you know, the patriarchs had occasional one-time audiences with God. And now, every year, the high priest will get to enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into the age to come, enter into the very presence of God. I realize for the rest of us it sounds like, well, but, but on the other, he's burying the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate. He brings all Israel into the Holy of Holies with him. And 
I mean, again, from my perspective, that's like, well, that's a piddling bit of nothing. Because what, Je- what did Jesus do? Jesus brings us not just into an earthly holy of holies, but into the heavenly holy place that we might enter into the presence of the living God. And so the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because of your covenant relation to a holy God, all of life must be sanctified for His glory. And we've seen in previous chapters the importance of the the ritual purity, the, the ceremonial holiness, Now we're going to start seeing more of, you might say, the ethical holiness. What does it mean to live a holy life? If you want to have fellowship with the Holy One, then you need to be holy as He is holy. And this is where there's both... There's both the already and the not yet in this. You have been set apart by God for fellowship to Himself, so be holy as God is holy. And... In verse 3, we start to see the practical outworkings of this. The first half of the chapter is closely related to the Ten Commandments. It's not in the same order, but since Moses is setting forth the basic ethical holiness that God requires, it's not surprising that his first eight commands are rooted in the fundamental covenant law. And first, holiness demands that you fear your father and mother and observe the Sabbath. Verse 3, the fifth commandment said to honor your father and mother. The fourth commandment said to remember the Sabbath day. We oftentimes lump the fifth commandment in with love toward neighbor, but its placement here suggests that fearing our parents is analogous to how we fear God. The man who does not respect his parents does not respect God. And it's important to say that the command to revere your mother and father never expires. It's not like, oh, hey, you know, I'm 18 years old. I can say, forget it, mom, forget it, dad. No, actually, and, and why, well, the reason why is actually found in the previous chapter. Sexual ethics are important. You're only here because this woman gave birth to you. She bore you in her womb for nine months. And maybe your father had a little bit less to do with it, but without him, you still wouldn't be here. And remember God's blessing to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The only way that happens is through procreation. Revere your mother and father. It doesn't mean they're always right. And as an adult, it doesn't mean you do everything that that they want you to do. But we honor and revere our parents because Yahweh is our God. Note the, the refrain that runs throughout the chapter. Why should you do this? I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. Therefore, honor your father and your mother. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. The Lord weaves Sabbath keeping together with honoring our parents. God has given us six days each week for our own employments and recreations, and he calls us to give the Sabbath day to him. You shall keep, you shall observe my Sabbaths. And when we do, we find refreshment and rest. Now, in our culture, we've largely abandoned both parts of verse 3. We tell children to ignore their parents and go do their own things and be busy, 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 running after stuff and status. And if it means that you sort of Sunday is just, you know, well, there's, you've got all sorts of stuff to do on Sunday, so you know, who cares about the Lord's Day? Who cares about God, the fourth commandment? But the Sabbath is a reminder that 
The Lord is our God. He made us and we are His. Why are we here? What's our purpose in life? We're not here for stuff and status. We are here to be His. God called us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But the God who called us to fill the earth and subdue it also rested on the Sabbath day. And even so must we. We are His. He made us for Himself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. Verse 4 tells us that holiness demands that you not turn to any idol or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And again the refrain, I am the Lord your God. Idolatry and holiness are fundamentally incompatible. This includes both the the condemnation of idols per se, as well as the condemnation of worshipping the Lord by any image. If you recall back, actually, Israel's first high priest, Aaron, was the one who had made the golden calf. And when he made the golden calf, remember what he said? This is Yahweh, your God. Golden calf worship was not the worship of other gods. Actually, if you go forward to the sin of Jeroboam in the book of Kings, what was the sin of Jeroboam? The sin of Jeroboam was not worshiping other gods besides Yahweh. The sin of Jeroboam was worshiping Yahweh by a golden calf. In one sense, this is the first and second commandments woven together here. We are to have no other God but God, and we should not make any image of God. Part of this is rooted back in that, yes, God is the one who made the image when he made Adam and Eve. And in chapter 16, we saw that when Aaron enters into the most holy place, there is an image of God in the holy of holies. Aaron, the high priest, was the image of God in the temple. So don't make images to worship. Now, I know that some think that because of the incarnation, therefore now, oh, it's okay to have pictures of Jesus. Now, my question to that is simply, why didn't God tell us this? What did God tell us about Jesus and images? Well, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the icon of God who sits at the right hand of the Father. There is an image in the heavenly holy of holies. And that's important. But the only image that we are commanded to see by faith is Jesus. By sight is one another. When I see you, I see the image of the God whom I love. When I see you, I see the image of my Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Verse Five then turns to the question of offering right sacrifices. This might seem like a, a little odd sort of like, wait, what's this doing here? Didn't we already deal with this back in chapter 7? Well, in chapter 7, we heard all the directions for the priests. It's arguable that, this sec- that sort of that section would be something that ordinary Israelites would never pay much attention to. But this section is talking about peace offerings. What's the point of a peace offering? The peace 
The, the peace offering is the one offering that the priest loses control of. All the other offerings, the burnt offering, the whole animal's burned, the sin offering, in some cases burned outside the camp, but the whole, basically the whole ritual, when the, when the ritual is complete, the animal's completely disposed of. But in the peace offering, when the ritual is over, there's leftover meat. And that meat goes home with the worshippers. And so, why is it here in chapter 19, rather than in the earlier sort of part of the, the, the clean and unclean? Well, it's because this is talking about what do you do when you take the meat home after the worship service? Once the priest gives the meat to the worshiper, it's entirely up to the worshiper to follow the proper liturgical rules and consume the meat within the next two days. You can take the meat home. So remember to love the Lord your God at home, not just at the tabernacle. It's part of the point of seeing how this isn't just about your religious life, it's talking about all of life that God's liturgical commands are as much a part of ethical holiness as His ethical commands. How you worship is part of your moral duty. It's part of what it means to be holy as God is holy. As Jesus put it, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? Love for God must be put into practice through love for neighbor. And, and that's where we turn in the second part of the chapter. Because verses 9 to 18 provide expressions about what it means to love your neighbor. And the refrain, I am the Lord, continues to punctuate our passage. If they fail to exhibit holiness in their relations with one another, then they will one day stand before God. His character, God's character must be the standard for our lives. And this is where, when we fall into the pattern of thinking of other things that our culture sends, sets forth as, here's what defines us, here's what makes us who we are, that easily falls into the trap of making an excuse for why I'm not doing what God says. The beautiful thing about what God says is that it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, how you are. Everyone can do this. This is... God's commands are not burdensome in the sense of, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I mean, what have we talked about so far? Well, we've talked about observing the Sabbath day. Yeah. No matter who you are, what you are, how you are, you, you can do that. Honoring your parents, you can do that. What God calls us to in living a holy life is not changed by any of the qualifications that our culture would tend to add. Now that may challenge us as we keep going. Because holiness requires leaving a portion of your harvest for the poor. Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your, your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now notice, God says right up front, this is your field, your vineyard, your harvest, your grapes. 
and the poor have a right to your harvest and your grapes. This is not actually sort of this is this this is not a, a question of oh if you want to. This is a command. God says you shall leave the edges and the gleanings for the poor and the sojourner. It's not optional. The poor and a so and the sojourner have a God-given right to your harvest. If you keep your whole income and give nothing to the poor, then you are a thief. I'll say that again. If you keep your whole income and give nothing to the poor, then you are a thief. And also just putting money in the diaconal offering is not the same thing. I love what our deacons do, so please keep giving to the deacons. But my point is that the principle of gleanings puts a much more direct connection between you and the poor. The principle of glean now there is a principle of the middleman. The principle of the middleman is there are to be storehouses in Israel for the care of the poor because there are there are poor who are not capable of gleaning. So there's a principle for helping poor at a distance you might say. But this is a the principle of connecting you with the poor. Think of Ruth who gleaned in the fields of Boaz. Talk about a connection. <laughs> now, the challenge is, okay, how do we do this? I mean, this, this is one of the advantages of, if, if we don't think of this as, we must do exactly, literally exactly everything. The question of equity. How do we apply the principles here? It's a challenge in our culture. Because the other aspect of gleanings is that the poor have to work in order to get part of your harvest. There is food available in every Israelite town, but you have to go get it. I mean, Ruth has to go join the other gleaners in order to go and find it. And gleaning is harder work than harvesting because it's the scraps and the edges. If you, if you remember from Ruth, Boaz says, oh, let her join in, for the, get the easy stuff, get the, you know, so the easy pickings. I mean, because he knows, oh, the edges and scraps, that's hard work. So Boaz shows favor to her by letting her glean amongst the reapers. But the principle is that how do we make, how do we give access to the poor to our harvest in our day? I mean, it's part of the reason why. I mean, hey, I, I live a block away from a liquor store. You want to guess how many times a week I get asked for cash? I got a simple principle. No. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, tell, I tell everybody, I, I don't give cash. Now, if somebody wants to work, I will consider it, though I struggle with the idea of giving them liquor money. It's like, mm. But if somebody needs food, I'll give them food. And how do we think about, how do we then, because... Part of what you see in the gleaning principle here and throughout the Old Testament is there's a relationship established and you can start to build connection, which is something that is a, it's, that takes hard work. But the principles are, the principles are clear. The challenge is how to implement them. Part of my income belongs to the poor. But secondly, their labor is what makes it theirs. 
So it's not just a matter of giving out handouts. That's not what the principle of gleanings is about. The principle of gleanings is part of my income should go to the poor through their labor. That's where the, the, the easy way of saying it is hiring them to do work is the easy way to say it. It's just a challenge of how do we implement this. And it, that, that, let's keep talking because there's lots of, it's, there's lots of challenges in this. But verses 11 to 12 then also point out that holiness requires us not to steal, either by act of theft or by word of deceit. God condemns all sleight of hand or sleight of tongue. Or to put it positively, we should be able to entrust both our goods and our names to one another. If your agenda is to get what you want from others, well, then your agenda is crooked and perverse. And then particularly, God says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I should point out that the, the one another here took on a life of its own because it's, it's here that you start to see later on uh, in Israel the idea that they were to love our neighbors but hate our enemies. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. And actually, when you read the Old Testament carefully, you start to realize love for the stranger and the sojourner had always been required by the law. If you had asked Moses, who is my neighbor? He probably would have told a story rather similar to the Good Samaritan because that was actually what Moses had said. I think sometimes, sometimes we wind up effectively saying that the Pharisees got the Old Testament right. And if you listen to Jesus, Jesus wants nothing to do with that. Jesus says, no, you missed the whole point. The point of the Old Testament was love your neighbor. And who is my neighbor? It's going to be whoever shows up, whoever happens to be in your path. I am the Lord, God says. And because of this, verse 13 you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Holiness requires us not to defraud or cheat our neighbors in any way. And the simple way of saying this is that no one who fears God may take advantage of another person's ignorance or helplessness. Now, if we took a very literal view of this, then I mean, you think about how many people get paid every you know, every two weeks or every month. You'd be like, well, but Mo Moses said must pay the same day. Well, there's a reason for this. In those days, day laborers, you might not see the guy the next day, and so paying paying the same day was important. If you don't pay him today, you might not see him tomorrow. And just imagine how an unscrupulous employer might use this to his advantage. Oh, yeah, I'll pay you tomorrow. And then I just, if I don't get anywhere near the town square, then I won't see you tomorrow. Then I don't have to pay you tomorrow. And then it might be next week before I pay. And now the laborer is like, ah, where's my money? And then the employer said, oh, I, you, know, you didn't work for me. I mean, and you can understand in a world where that was the custom unscrupulous employers haven't exactly gone away uh, and also to, to curse the deaf and put a stumbling block before the blind if you think about what that means yeah, 
a blessing has real power and so does a curse. To curse a deaf man, he can't hear you. And so you think, he, he won't know. Oh, but but God does. The power of a spoken word is important. To curse a deaf man is the same as it is to trip a blind man. Word and deed are woven together. I am the Lord. And you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. It's not, it's, this is where, when, when Scripture regularly talks about defending the rights of the poor, it's not saying, oh, well, sort of run over the rich in order to, in order to help the poor. No. It's do justice, which it's actually, it's fairly rare that the poor is defrauding the rich. Usually it's the other way around. But Moses is clear. Be scrupulously just in your judgments. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Because if you don't, then you wind up as a slanderer among your people. If you don't, then you are standing up against the life of your neighbor. If you know something that could save the innocent, stand up and defend them. I am the Lord. And all of this comes down to one basic principle. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Don't hate him, but confront him. Reason with him. Uh, Jesus will say, go to him, show him, your, show him his fault. It's, it's interesting how when, as, you, as you really dig into what Moses is doing, you start realizing, what is Jesus doing in the Gospels? He's largely pointing out, uh, by the way, this is, this is what Moses really was saying. It, 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 he's not, all of those in, in Matthew's Gospel, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Usually when he's, that you have heard it was said, it's, it's not actually saying, sort of, oh, Moses said this, and now I'm saying that. It's, you've misunderstood what Moses was about. I'm telling you this, and I'm telling you what the law was really saying. I'm telling you what, after all, what I was really saying back when I was speaking this to Moses, which you guys have really messed up. Because, yes, rebuke your neighbor, lest you share in his guilt. And when we live the way that Jesus calls us to live, it is better than when we don't. Don't take vengeance. You've heard me say this before. It's not that vengeance is bad, it's that we're bad at vengeance. Let God do it. He's much better at it. And don't bear grudges. Love your neighbor as yourself. Holiness is not a sort of half-baked passivity. You must be active in your love for your neighbor. And remember what Jesus has done for the definition of neighbor. I mean, it's Moses, we, we should have understood it from Moses. But Jesus makes it really clear. Who is my neighbor? The Jews were expecting, and would have been just fine with, 
a Samaritan in the ditch. And the noble Jew comes to rescue the Samaritan, the sojourner, the foreigner, who, ah, yes, the, the righteous Jew comes to res- the rescue of this foreigner. They would have been fine with that. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus put the Jew in the ditch. And he said, it was the Samaritan who loved his neighbor. And ooh, did that rankle them. Because it was saying that, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the drug dealer down the street who rescued the Christian who was in trouble. Huh? (laughs) Yeah. It turns our world upside down when we think about it. Because when we think about, when we think about sort of our way of thinking of the world, we tend to think of the drug dealers as the Samaritans of the modern world. That's the way Jews thought of Samaritans. But if, I mean, you and I know better we think of the Samaritans and we think of, actually, you know, they were, they were probably fairly, you know, ordinary, normal, decent people. And, and you might say, but that's not drug dealers. Are you so sure? How many drug dealers do you know? I've had a chance to meet a few. I think they're a lot like the Samaritans. It's... Augustine talks about bandits and, and sort of uh, how a group of bandits, oh, they're, they're not involved in, in, in righteous activities, but what is it that they want? Peace. They have a community that they're, that they're maintaining. What is, what is it that drug dealers are trying to do? Are they trying to destroy people? Not the ones I've met. What are they trying to do? they're trying to maintain some sort of order in their community that's sort of outside the mainstream of the sort of South Bend community. I'm not saying what they're doing is right. I'm just saying what Jesus does with the Good Samaritan is very much like saying, it's like, actually, because as I got to know Monte over the years, I began realizing, you know, the, oh, this this dramatic transformation from this from this uh, this drug dealer to becoming a, a godly Christian, and oh, there was a dramatic transformation in terms of his relationship to Jesus. But it was actually when I was at his funeral that I, as I listened to the people who were telling stories from back when he was the drug dealer, I was like, huh. He was in many respects the same man. He cared about his community. He was trying to help young people in his community in really misguided ways. Recognizing that, oh, loving your neighbor as yourself. How do, you know, this is something that is extremely common in human life and society. Every religion, every philosophy, every community agrees. Love your neighbor as yourself. You'll find it in every 
And recognizing that is important because what is it that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ distinct? It's not that we are the only ones who say love your neighbor as yourself. It's that we are the ones who say that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has loved us and come into our world and made everything different, made all things new because he has loved us with an everlasting love that the holiness of God has entered our world and has brought us into fellowship with him so that we might share in his holiness. And so, yeah, what it means for us to love our neighbor as ourselves is rooted first and foremost in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because then, and only then, do we become more and more like the God who is love. Oh Lord, have mercy on us and help us because we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have been selfish and proud and, and we have too often pursued our own little cliques and our own little groups just like the drug dealer down the street. Lord, have mercy and forgive us. Help us to not be like that, but to love you and to love your people the way you have called us, that we might be holy as your Son, our Lord Jesus, is holy, as you, our Heavenly Father, are holy. We thank you that you have promised and that you have drawn us into fellowship with yourself, that we might share in your holiness. Help us, Lord, to live as that holy people, to show forth your love and your care for those who are in need. Lord, have mercy on us in our, in our callings, in our work, in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, that in each place where you put us, that you would help us to humble ourselves before your almighty hand, to believe your promises and to trust your, your, in your grace. Lord, have mercy upon those who are afflicted and, and those who are, who are suffering, those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, those who are, who are tempted and tried and, and pulled away from your, from your gospel. Lord, help us to hear your voice, to believe your promises, to turn away from our practical atheism and to turn to you, the one true God and your Son, our Lord Jesus. Lord, by your Spirit and by your Word, renew us this night and lead us in paths everlasting. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.